Hi, Victoria. How are you? Hi everyone, how are you? We'll start in a few minutes, waiting for the speaker to arrive and uh, for more people to arrive. So, uh, thanks for your patience. Oh, sounds Katarina. good. Welcome, Hello. Jane. Hi, how are you? Very good, thank you. Just got home from a hike. It's really sunny out here. Kind of warm, but not really. How are you? I'm fine. It's like 2 a.m. here. A little bit chilly, but I'm sorted. I've got a nice cup of tea to keep me warm through the presentation. What about you, Katarina? How was your day? Good, good. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Abyss. Thank you for coming. Dennis. Hey all. Hello, hello. Dennis. Hi, how are you, man? Hello, hello, hello. I did some of the reading beforehand. This should be a very interesting conversation. Yes. It should be interesting enough to keep Jamie awake even though it's 2 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> I never get tired listening. In fact, I always come away from these being pumped, like weirdly pumped. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, let's do science. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, science. <laughs> yeah, let's let's do science. It's a verb now. <laughs> That's our motto from now on. Let's do science. Yeah. Was I saw there was a, a room there called "Do Atheist Logic Well." <laughs> And they were, they were they were talking about atheism and stuff out there, eh? And I popped in and just popped kind of out. They were having their own kind of debates back and forward. But I just love the the, the tongue and cheekness of it. Do they do they logic well? Very nice. I just quoted you in the chat, Jamie. I hope it's okay with you. <laughs> That's I okay. your motto in there. <laughs> Welcome, Dr. Shaw. Looking forward to your questions and input. Hi everyone, it just started, right? We're, we're just about to get started. We're awaiting our guest. Yeah, I wrote emails with him today, so uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe he has issues coming. I just wrote him an email to ask He'll be if here. everything is okay. He's on his way. Hey, Serena. He's finding parking or something. Oh. Exactly. <laughs> Hi, Serena. Hi. How's your day? Oh, are we getting started on that? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Tom. Hello. Welcome, guests in the audience. Feel free to ping your friends. We've got lots of room. We'll get started in a little bit.
we hope. I was thinking of looking up um, specifically what the guy was going to, what the doctor was going to talk about today, but I like to be surprised just now. So I don't know where this is going to go, but I'm looking forward to it. Okay, I won't tell you. Spoilers. <laughs> yeah, let's see. And, um,. I can make like general announcements. Maybe I should share the Discord. Wow. I heard you mention that Discord. you've got a Discord yeah, thing me, for this. Let me get the link. Let me find it. Well, where's Dr. Lent? We are waiting. Oh, so okay. in the meantime, we can have some fun in general. Can you <laughs> general tell us fact. that? Exactly. So, so <laughs> there he is. Welcome, Nathan. Oh, okay. Oh, then I'll share it later. Hi. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Can you um, hear me? I, yeah, I hope you yes. found, found oh, a okay. good parking spot. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was Victoria's joke earlier. Uh. <laughs> oh, what did I say? <laughs> the you, parking. Hey, parking is a. Oh yes, go well, for I, it. I parking is a nightmare in New York. <laughs> Do you need a pass? Do you need like a. <laughs> um yeah thank you so much nathan for coming and um i'll introduce you and then if that's okay with you victoria asks like um a question or two so the audience gets to know you a little bit better as a scientist and then the stage is yours to to introduce your um your research okay that sounds great Perfect. So welcome everyone to the Science Society today. Um, we have um, a really um, great guest speaker here today. Um, meet Nathan, Dr. Nathan Lentz. And I will tell you a little bit about him. Um, I'm sorry, my, my, I'm sorry, my phone is up okay so um he's um at the department of science in john jay college the city university of new york and um he um got his bachelor in biology at the st louis university and his phd in pharmacology and physiology at st louis university school of medicine and he did his postdoc um, in genomics at the New York University and he has now his own lab and um, his lab has two active projects. First, he's studying the recent evolution of the human genome uh, in an effort to help to understand the genetic underpinnings of human uniqueness. Um, and. Um, the, uh, the lab is engaged in a genome scale effort to discover and characterize these human specific genes. And um, in general, the goal is to develop a DNA um, coding system for species identification of trace plant residue recovered from crime scenes and the development of microsatellite markers for forensic DNA fingerprinting of plants 
to tools that are currently lacking in the forensic toolkits. He also wrote uh, popular science books and articles, um, and he has a blog at the Human Evolution blog, and um, he writes for um, also Psychology Today. Um, under the tagline, Beastly Behavior, How Evolution Shaped Our Minds and Bodies. Yeah, so thank you so much for coming. We are very honored to having you here today. And Victoria, go ahead. Thank you, Catherine, Katarina, sorry. That's, we're, um, Nathan, we are yes. so excited to have you here. While we were waiting, we were just lightly discussing that. Um, so if you don't mind, I, I'm, I'm wondering a few things, general things, and I'll, I'll ask you a question and please feel free to answer it um, as narrowly or bro as broadly as you like. Um, I'm, I'm interested to learn about how people arrive at their field of study, but backing up a little bit from that, how you decided or how you first became interested in science or knew that science was something that you wanted to spend your time researching or, or just, you know, being involved in. Okay. Um, wow. Well, that's interesting uh, line of questions. Um, let me, so I'll, I'll start with your, what you asked second, because it, it leads into uh, what I'm doing now. Um, I, um, you know, I always, you know, liked science as a kid, you know, just, you know, good at math, good at science, kind of, you know, science nerd, you know, as a kid, I like science fiction and all that kind of thing. Um, and, but at the time and place I grew up, when you, when you express, I didn't know any scientists, nobody I knew knew any scientists. So um, when you express a, a, a affection for science, they think, oh, well, you should be a doctor. That's, you know, a medical doctor. That's all people think of when they think of a science, you know, like I said, at the time and place I grew up. Well, um, so I kind of marched through thinking I wanted to be a doctor, but I got to college and they made us do an internship in the operating room and an internship in the emergency room. Or I, I think you had some choices actually, but those are the two I cho chose. Well, I mean, <laughs> those did not go well. I mean, I, it was immediately apparent that I not only was not cut out for um, medicine, but also not interested. I was, I found it incredibly boring. I remember being um, uh, in the locker room after a, an operation. I watched a four hour operation with another intern. And we, did, we just sat there and watched the operation. I, I, I remember thinking it was the longest four hours of my life. It was just incredibly boring, um, just watching paint dry. And even the surgeons were really nice. They were trying to explain everything to us, but I just had, it was, I just did not find it interesting. And then we were in the locker room and, and my fellow intern, just as I was about to open my mouth to say that, says, wasn't that great? <laughs> um, so I knew we were just different there because he was having the time of his life and I, I couldn't have been more bored. Anyway, so that's when I was like, what else can you do with a science degree? Oh, I know, be a scientist. Um, because really what interested me is how everything works. You know, I wanted to, um, you know, take things apart and understand how they work. And I didn't, um, I wasn't comfortable around people who were ill. So uh, to science I went. And I've always enjoyed biology a little bit more than chemistry, although I, I do like chemistry. And um, my very first research project involved working with DNA. I was trying to get DNA into soil bacterium, a gram-positive soil bacterium. And then my second project, I was looking for genes uh, responsible for resistance to nematodes in soybean plants. So these are industrial, you know, kind of projects. Um, and long story short, every project I've ever dealt with, I've been dealing with DNA, particularly DNA sequences. 
and how sequence, DNA sequences work. So if you look at the different areas that I've published in, things I've, I've, I've written about, uh, it, it looks like very eclectic, or some might even say unfocused, my research interest. But actually, the common thread in all of them is I would I want to know how DNA sequences work, how they actually code for this incredible, you know, thing that we call the, uh, a human being. Um, not not that all the work is done by DNA, but it, it certain certainly most of it is. Most of the information is there. So I've still to this day am fascinated by how DNA sequences actually code for things. So that's my that's what drives me. That's the interest that. Um, has pushed me through my career. Um, another thing I might say is that um, there's many forks in the road as you're you know, pursuing a you know, college, um, grad school, postdoc, and then whatever job you take after that. And um, my life could have turned out very differently uh, at any of those choices, but I was really drawn to college life and, um, you know, an undergraduate specifically. So I, even though I did my, all my training at medical centers, I was very happy to get away from medical centers when it came time to, um, you know, set up my career, because I just love, you know, being in college, being around college, it's sort of that, that atmosphere of intellectual life and young people uh, with young ideas. And I mean, everything, everything is uh, at the forefront of our culture is being discussed uh, at the university. So um, I never wanted to leave. <laughs> Thank you for that journey, that in-depth journey along your maybe your thought process i have to say um i think it would be presumptuous to to say um to give a judgment and say that somebody's research looks what did you say unfocused because hmm. i don't know exactly what the path was that led you to each research project so i, I wouldn't i wouldn't presume that i i'm just thinking maybe people who are working in science maybe would be able to um you know recognize that something that might look like chaos is not at all yeah. but but I also find that it's interesting, your book, um, your, your, your tagline, Beastly Behavior, How Evolution Shaped Our Minds and Bodies, because you are really sharing exactly, you are really, it sounds like you're very in touch with your own behavior and what drives <laughs> you because of what you said about, um, you know, observing the operation, <laughs> the mm -hmm. surgery, and, and then where you are now and, and you know, what, what you're doing, the evolution of the human genome and just how your description to discovering the understanding, the genetic underpinnings of human uniqueness. So, um, yeah, thank you. And, and then you've described, explained how you arrived exactly where you are today. So, so thank you so much. And, uh, the floor is yours to. Okay, great. Well, um, since you are interested on the more personal side of things, I can actually tell how this project actually started rather than what I would say to just to a pure in a pure science. Thank talk. you. Um, I because I just want to interrupt you just for one moment, because I see you have the little party hat on, which indicates that you haven't been here for longer than seven days. And so I okay. want you to know that when people when you see our mics flashing like this, can we flash our mics? Oh, uh -huh. It means that we're we're applauding. We're silently saying "Yay" for whatever oh. was just said. So oh. I was applauding you, recognizing that you may not realize it. So now you can you can know. So all right, okay. now Nathan, the floor is yours. Okay. Um, so um, while I was a faculty member at John Jay College, I was increasingly taking on administrative roles, and so um, I was getting further and further away from my research lab, further and further away from even teaching and doing you know part-time administrative roles and eventually i got the, a full-time administrative role as the director of the honors programs um and i did that for four years and for a number of reasons i was very eager to step down and i realized i was just too young 
to leave science behind, you know, to, to re leave my research lab behind. It's just, I don't mind, you know, if, if it, we end up there eventually, but uh, it was just too early. You know, at that point, I wasn't even 40 years old. So I, um, you know, I went back to the lab, but the problem is if you haven't been running a research lab for four years, all your reagents are expired, all your, you know, you have to rebuy everything. And I didn't have a steady stream of projects that were keeping the funding streams coming and all of that. So I decided to go back into what I did for a postdoc. About half of my postdoc was in computational biology. So I said, well, you know, that stuff, I have what I need and I can write grants for, for better computers, um, you know, for a fraction of the cost of doing bench work. So I said, let me go back into computational biology. Um, and my real interest is, as I said, is in DNA and how it works anyway. And I've been interested in human evolution because all of the work I've been doing writing uh, on human evolution. So I decided, why don't I sort of put these interests together, human evolution, uh, my, my passion for genetics and DNA, and then also this desire to get back into computational biology. So I put all those interests together and said, well, what's the big unresolved question in human evolution? And I mean, there are many unresolved questions, but the biggest one, as I looked at it was, what is the genetics of of human evolution. We, we know a lot about our anatomy, you know, our morphology and uh, sort of the patterns and the selective forces that, uh, you know, that led us to, to, to evolve the way we did. But we have almost no understanding of the genes that are underneath all of that. Um, and, so, you know, genetics isn't everything, but it's going to be certainly most of it when it comes to the anatomical changes associated with how we became so different uh, in just, you know, less than seven million years, we um, really transformed. Um, uh, from just another run-of-the-mill African ape into um, whatever it is we are now. <laughs> so um, I wanted to take a look at the human genome and just sort of find areas in it that were either underexplored or underappreciated. So what I what what we did was a very simple approach, and this is figure one of the paper. We just lined up the, the, the human um, chromosomes with their chimpanzee counterpart. They're our closest relative, the chimpanzees. And, um, they've been evolving too, so it's not just, you know, they're not ancestors, of course, but um, we can sort of deduce the ancestral state of some of these chromosomes by comparison with the other, with, with, with our fellow African apes. So I started with the chimpanzee chromosomes, and what we realized, and, and our goal was to just find what we call deserts of conservation, or you could say islands of divergence, meaning parts of the chromosomes that just really look different between the humans and the chimpanzees. Very naive question. This is a very naive thing to do, by the way, because people have been working in this field for some time. But, but when you, this is always the benefit of being a properly trained outsider is you can come in with a very fresh look and ask naive questions. And sometimes you find things <laughs> that other people haven't overlooked because they've been steeped in, you know, this is how we've always done it, or this is what we've always understood. So we just lined up the chromosomes and our goal was to find these little uh, deserts uh, where um, there was marked divergence between humans and chimpanzees. And my goal was to basically go through all the chromosomes one at a time. So we started with the smallest one, which is chromosome 21. The, the chromosomes are numbered in order of size uh, with, with some exceptions at the smallest ones when they were numbered before we actually had the size accurate. <laughs> so even though chromosome 22, you would expect to be the smallest one, uh, it's actually chromosome 21. So we started with chromosome 21 and we lined, uh, lined it up and it's an acrocentric chromosome. So we knew there'd be differences between the short arm and the long arm, uh, of the chromosome, but we, uh, lined it up and sure enough, we it just didn't line up very well on the um, the western end of the chromosome, uh, you know, west of the centromere. So uh, th this is the short arm. So the short arm of the chromosome just really didn't line up very well, but the long arm of the chromosome lined up perfectly well. 
so we, we noticed that the short arm had a lot of divergence between how the chimpanzee chromosome looked and how ours did. So we started then saying, well, is, are humans the weird one or are chimpanzees the weird one? Or is this just this chromosome is a mess in all the apes? So we, we did the line with other apes. And so we did pairwise, basically all the combinations because we have um, the ape genomes that we have access to, um, you know, that everyone has access to besides, besides humans are uh, the gorillas, the orangutans, and both species of chimpanzees, the chimpanzees and the uh, bonobos. So we lined them up in all of these pairwise combinations. What we noticed is that all of the other apes, their chromosome 21 lines up really well throughout the entire length of the chromosome, short arm, long arm, centromere, everything. But really, if you line any of them up, and this is figure uh, 1D in the paper, um, if you line any of the uh, apes up with their chromosomes, uh, with our chromosome 21, and you'll notice that the short arm just does not align very well at all. So there's a lot of, uh, of, of sort of unique human sequence there. Um, but the other apes all line up to each other fine. So it really is human are, are the outlier. So we decided to zoom in and basically we just did this analysis with more and more precision as we zoomed in on uh, on these specific divergences, um, because you can do this. You can you can do the settings of these alignments almost any way you want them. Uh, you can have minimum length. You can have uh, minimum sequence similarity. There's lots of ways to do this and you can be you know tolerant of, of either strand or both. Strand. It, it, it's lots of uh, dials and knobs that you can twist on these alignments to get more uh, fine tuned results. Um, but you don't want to do it with the entire chromosome because it's, you know, <laughs> many, many megabases of sequence. So we wanted to keep zooming in is basically what we did. Uh, and figure two of the paper is, shows, shows the result of that zoom in. We really kind of narrow things down to about a one megabase region uh, that has huge chunks that are just not conserved at all between the human and the chimpanzee. Um, and, and even individual stretches, you know, tens of, of thousands of base pairs where uh, there's simply no sequence similarity anywhere in the chimpanzee genome. Uh, to what the humans have. So this was very unexpected result. Um, we, we didn't expect to have these huge chunks of, of unique human DNA sequence. Now, the next thing we did was we just asked, well, what is there? You know, what, what's going on in this roughly one megabase region that we were focusing on? Well, actually, I'm sorry, the window of one megabase actually was set um, by the next result. So I, I, I should, shouldn't have said that too early. We were looking at a larger chunk. Um, more like two, two megabases actually, but then we zoomed in on one megabase once we saw what was there. So figure three shows what we found and uh, not, not what we found, sorry. This is what is the annotation uh, of this region of chromosome 21 that's out there. And what we noticed is, a, is two, well actually three families of microRNA genes. And these microRNA genes are, are um, uh, they have the a gene name mirror and then a number. So these are all the mirror genes. Uh, we have about 1,600 of these genes in the human genome, but we noticed these clusters. And what was interesting about these clusters of mirror genes were that they, um, they were in these repeating patterns. So we had four members of one family, two members of another, and two members of a third family. But they were repeated in ways that, that sort of looked like tandem repeats, but not quite. Uh, and then another repeat looked like an inverted repeat, but not quite. It, it, we just saw like ch whole chunks of this chromosome seem to have been duplicated uh, in a weird way. What we also noticed is that in this region, they're not just these microRNA genes, they're also arrays of ribosomal RNA genes. Um, long, so the way that ribosomal RNA works is the, this is transcribed and then chopped into smaller pieces. So you have a sort of mega ribosomal RNA that then gets processed into several parts. And then those parts are what are actually used uh, to build the, the, the ribosome, the RNA component of the ribosome. I don't know if you know, but the ribosome is more than 60% RNA um, in terms of mass. <clears throat> 
Anyway, so within these RNA genes seem to be the mirror genes, the microRNA genes, sort of genes within genes, which is possible with RNAs, of course, because they, you know, there's not a, a reading frame that has to be maintained. So, um, uh, and also uh, shown in figure three at the bottom, we just show that these regions uh, are enriched for CPG islands uh, all throughout the, uh, the annotated gene regions, uh, indicating, you know, it's been maintained by selection, probably uh, transcriptionally active. Uh, actually, it doesn't so show that it's been maintained by selection. Actually, it shows that it's likely to be transcriptionally active, uh, and therefore it would be uh, maintained by selection. Um, that's a different test we would do. Okay, um, and then as we zoom in smaller and smaller, what we did, uh, we were able to do is what's called self-synteny, where you compare sequence to itself. And what we found was there really are these large chunks of uh, what we call segmental duplications. Um, there are various sizes and even chunks within chunks uh, of DNA uh, were subjected to the segmental duplication. Now it should be no, it should be said that segmental duplication itself is not terribly unusual. Uh, when you have um, large stretches of repetitive repetitive DNA, uh, these do tend to um, expand over time. Uh, they can also contract, but generally we don't see the contraction events as often as we see duplication events. Uh, this was driven by uh, basically misalignment during meiotic recombination. So some DNA gets pulled from one, one homolog to the other uh, during meiosis, during crossing over. Uh, anyway, um, so we found evidence that this, these chunks within chunks within chunks of, of, of repeated duplications have occurred. But interestingly, um, the model that we proposed is that within the process of those duplications, some regions that code for RNA, uh, ribosomal RNA were sort of born into microRNAs. Because if you take a chunk of several different regions of ribosomal RNA, uh, it's very easy to get uh, a hairpin structure that looks a lot like a microRNA. So if this, if this chunk uh, would be created by duplication, uh, such that it created a hairpin, that hairpin could be active in the microRNA system of gene expression. Now, I haven't told you what microRNAs are, and that's where uh, things start to get interesting. So microRNAs, if you don't know, uh, are one of the newest classes of molecules ever discovered. Uh, they were discovered really uh, in terms of what their, what their function is less than 20 years ago. And these microRNAs target genes for post-transcriptional silencing. Um, so it's a way to turn a gene off. Um, a separate gene for some protein, um, to turn it off even after that gene is transcribed into messenger RNA, you can then target that messenger RNA for destruction. So it's kind of an additional level of gene expression control in these microRNAs. So, um, but they're very small, very compact, tiny little molecules, uh, basically just a, a hairpin. Uh, the, the, the overall hairpin can be as small as 60 or 70 base pairs. Most of them are uh, in the 100 to 200 range, very small genes, and um, but they can have far-reaching effects because a single microRNA can target, oh, three, four hundred uh, different genes for silencing. Uh, and it's important to remember that silencing isn't always, in fact, isn't usually complete. It's more of a turning the volume down rather than turning uh, the power off. Uh, but still, it would affect gene expression. Um, so a single microRNA can can affect hundreds of targets and being expressed all throughout the body or in just one tissue. You know, both extremes are possible. There are microRNAs that have seven targets. There are microRNAs that have 700 targets. And there are microRNAs that are expressed in every single cell of your body. And there are microRNAs that are expressed only in neurons, for example. In fact, there are many of, of those. So um, all things are possible <laughs> with microRNAs is kind of the, um, uh, the way to look at it. Is they, they, they're really capable of very exquisite, uh, fine-tuned control of gene expression um, but it, it could with far-reaching effects. So 
our hypothesis at this point is, is summed up this way. Uh, chunks of segmental duplications over evolutionary time occurring on chromosome 21 created new microRNA genes out of ribosomal RNA genes uh, pre-existing. And so the creation of these microRNAs were then active, uh, and actually I'll get to that in a second. Uh, some of these microRNAs anyway were active in silencing genes and therefore affecting uh, the organism. And once you start having some kind of effect, a phenotype in genetic terms, then uh, those microRNAs would be subject to natural selection. Uh, and over the time were refined into what we now know as, you know, MIR6724 and MIR3648. These are the two uh, of the three families. The other, the third family member, we don't believe is active uh, as a gene. But the other two we know are. Uh, we know they're active because they've been detected in screens. They've been studied in several tissues. They are even found in cerebrospinal fluid in the case of MIR6724. So um, the point is, uh, these are human unique. No orthologs exist in, in chimpanzees or any other ape. Um, they do seem to encode for microRNAs. And what we were able to do was predict what the gene targets are uh, of these microRNAs. So these are human unique microRNAs. Uh, by the way, we did find them in the ancient genomes that are available, Neanderthal and Denisovan genomes, for those who are interested in those, uh, and, and in identical or nearly identical form. Um, but in any event, um, we were able to predict what the targets of these new uh, human unique genes are. These are very young genes. Uh, and actually, they show the signs of being young, meaning uh, they have diverged, uh, they have much lower sequence conservation among the apes. Uh, and even among human population, there are some, some variations. These are very young genes. What we found when we predicted the targets of these microRNAs, so there's tools you can use. Uh, actually, we wrote our own algorithm for this. Um, to actually detect what the targets of these microRNAs are, because the microRNAs target the genes that they do by simple sequence matching. Now, there's some variations on this theme. That not all hits are identical, and there's only a certain seven or eight base pair region that does the targeting, and the target has to have that sequence in his three prime UTR. Number of conditions to be met, but the point is, is that we can actually run this algorithm and detect uh, with you know, fair amount of accuracy, what the targets of the microRNA are. Now, there's no substitute for validation of those targets. So that would be future studies. Um, but using just the predictive software of what these microRNAs um, actually target, uh, we were able to look at the lists of genes that are affected. And it is quite remarkable what those genes are. So there's um, a program uh, or, or an algorithm called gene ontology, which actually looks for overrepresentation of certain, of, of whatever category of genes. So if you have a list of genes, let's say you input 100 random genes uh, into, into the algorithm. First of all, that would, that would, if you pick 100 at random, nothing would happen because it would say no, there's no enrichment. Um, but what it would do if these were a meaningful set of 100 genes, it would say, wow, these are enriched for genes involved in, oh, I don't know, skeletal muscle function. Or, ooh, these 100 genes are enriched uh, for those involved um, in uh, the cell cycle and, and, and growth control, uh, or, you know, and so on. So uh, all genes in the human genome, well, 20,000 of them anyway, have been characterized uh, and put into different categories. And these are hierarchical categories. So what we did was we generated target lists uh, for our human unique microRNAs, and then went and looked at what kinds of genes um, are in that list of their targets. And what we found is there's an, a really remarkable enrichment 
for genes involved in development of the nervous system, uh, specifically uh, development of embryonic development, um, uh, regulation of, of uh, neurons, uh, regulation of synaptic formation, several of the categories that basically that what you would expect to find if you're looking at genes involved uh, in the development of the human brain. And so, um, and remember, there's no prior knowledge that we were interested in in uh, human evolution that goes into any of this, right? We were just feeding lists of genes into a program that's detected, that's designed to detect enrichment uh, for categories of genes, and they found enrichment uh, in our lists. So we were obviously very excited about this, and we're following up on this with several uh, related projects, uh, because what what we really conclude from this is that microRNAs. And I don't just mean these two, we, we focused on these two, but microRNAs in general might be a very underappreciated um, engine of human evolution um, because they can do a lot with a simple, simple one base pair change. You can affect gene expression of hundreds of genes in, in various tissues of your body. So it seems to me like they would be um, sort of good fodder uh, for, you know, unique evolutionary events in our lineage. Um, I am basically right at 9.30. How did I do in, in uh, sort of summarizing that on, on, on time? You, you, can, you can go on as long as you like. Um, I was curious, <laughs> I was curious uh, how long we have the honor of your presence. Um, well, I mean, I'm fine for a little while. I'm not really going anywhere. If you want to ask some questions, I think that'd be great. And then I can you know, see what else I want to say after, based on the questions. We're really good at keeping researchers up all night long, so feel free to set a firm boundary with this group. Okay, well, I have to tuck my son in at some point, so <laughs> that'll be the hard cutoff. So I have a question. So the it, fascinating story and fascinating results. And, um, you know, so am I to draw the implication uh, for uh, the distinction of uh, human brain and its development uh, uh, relative to uh, close neighbor apes is that, a, in essence, the microRNAs um, silenced or reduced the, the, the regulation of the previous architecture in the sense so that it allowed an expansion of the neocortex, for example, or you know, other types of uh, neural tissues. Right. Um, so I would say that that's a, a reasonable hypothesis uh, to make. Our data don't don't um, say anything that precise. I wish I wish we could say that. Um, but what we can, what this does do, is sort of point us towards uh, some genes and some tissues um, at which these microRNAs might have been working in. Uh, we do know that um, you know compared to chimpanzees, the, the human brain is much expanded uh, neocortex, as you mentioned. Uh, we also have much more specialization of, throughout the cerebrum, um, you know, lateralization and, um, you know, there's quite a bit of developmental change uh, in the human cerebrum. So, um, you know, these microRNAs, uh, we're certainly not working alone. I don't mean to say that we've solved human evolution here, but um, I think um, added in with, you know, some of the, you know, changes to uh, protein and other, you know, regulatory reasons for all these genes. Um, I certainly do see, or the, at least the possibility of a role for, for if not these two microRNAs, other microRNAs in this, in this process. Okay, who else has questions? I know we have some flash mics. Okay, Abyss, go for it. Uh, hi, Nathan. Um, yeah, a great presentation. I was um, 
was listening very attentively. Um, and I have like, uh, a couple of questions. The first one being like, um, um, like uh, I guess like it's based on what uh, Serena was asking. Like uh, I was, I was um, when you mentioned something about particular these these RNAs being particular to um, humans. I was I was also curious like if they also play an active role in targeted cells in essence, um, so that um, for example when the um, when the neocortex is actually forming, if they actually uh, can. Um, activate or deactivate cells so that it can have this, uh, you know, a gyrated bulbous structure that we have uh, during um, uh, during development. Um, yeah. So the short answer is yes. It's absolutely possible that that um, you know programmed cell death could play a role um, in. Well, I think it's beyond question that uh, programmed cell death plays a role in development of the nervous system. Whether these microRNAs are in some way a connected to that, um, I don't know. Um, if, if we can say that yet, what I can say is that the genes involved in, uh, nervous system development that these microRNAs regulate, um, they didn't, we didn't see, uh, enrichment for categories related to programmed cell death. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything because, um, the genes involved that we know are, are connected to programmed cell death. Um, that's their job. That, that's their main sort of business. These microRNAs likely touch a, a, a earlier step in the signaling, if you know what I'm saying. So the, that's more of an output. Programmed cell death would be more of an output of uh, some developmental process, whereas I would suspect that these microRNAs are working earlier in that process, earlier in the signaling cascade, in a way that's not necessarily connected directly to programmed cell death. It's just several steps upstream is another way to say it. But that's what I found. Oops, that's uh, that's just a guess, of course. <laughs> gotcha. Thanks for that. My second question is: um, uh, Is there a plan to uh, essentially activate those microRNAs in um, rodent models or uh, non-human human primates? I guess like non-human primates would actually come uh, later in the echelon of the research. But um, I'm curious if it's possible to sort of. Um, study particularly if these microRNAs play an active role in um, uh, neural development in non-human models, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely an experiment um, that like a conceivable experiment to get some kind of answers. Um, do we have plans? No, I, I do not have those plans. And I don't know if anybody else does. Um, but an experiment that where you would sort of try to provide this human unique microRNA into a non-human, um, it, there's some problems with that. It's not as clean as experiment as it might sound like. First of all, you have to remember that many other things were, were changing at the same time, some of which we know, most of which we don't. So, you know, you're, it's really just a totally different organism. Another thing to keep in mind, and this is actually related to some of the work we're doing with the Neanderthal genome right now, is that you can't predict the targets of one microRNA in another species. Because remember that the they target a specific sequence in the messenger RNA of their target. It's in a three prime UTR. Well, that's been evolving also. So it would have a different target list in a different species. Now there may be overlap, but that's even more reason why just providing a microRNA from a different species wouldn't be sensical in another species. It would just have a different set of targets. Yes, there might be some overlap, but um, I, I, I think you're just almost certainly to get a, 
uninterpretable result is the way I would put it is it would probably screw things up, but that doesn't really tell you what the gene does in humans. I mean, you know, and, and the experiments that you could do to do that, of course, are not ethical. So what you would have to do instead is just sort of uh, be able to visualize uh, what, what these microRNAs are doing during human development. Um, that's obviously not a simple task, <laughs> uh, but there are experiments that, that, that look at that. Um, and we might be able to mirror some of that in other species, but, um, um, it is a difficult question to study a human unique gene because by definition, putting it into another organism really isn't possible. I mean, I mean, you could do it, but it, it won't give you a clean result. Um, and of course we don't experiment on humans. So, um, yeah, there's, you have much fewer options many fewer options but these are good yeah, questions the, these are good questions i think that's the i think that's the risk with genetics that often you ask well what if we put this into that and then you have to work through it and realize well that's not actually ethical because there's a there's a creature there's an entity there's a being so you have to find more ethical ways of navigating that unless of course you find yourself in a uh, foreign nation state of some sort like uh uh <laughs> where the, the boundaries are not so uh, well defined Right. Um, I don't, uh, yeah, I don't presume much of that's going on with human evolution so much, but you well, never China know. China <laughs> did that uh, experiment on those two embryos, right? So that's, that's what I'm kind there, of alluding there, to. There's been a three, three parent baby, um, that was born in China within the last 12 months is what I was reading. I think the doctor just got released from prison. Yeah. Too. It's funny, you get funded by the government and then they send you to prison and then you're out. So it's kind of a weird trip that he took. But sorry, my apologies for disrupting your flow. Dr. Scott, I saw <laughs> well, you on In the Interval Genome, and believe it or not, I have had someone email me one time to ask if they thought, I don't know who this person was, to ask if I thought we would be de-extincting uh, <laughs> the Neanderthals. Um, <laughs> I... <laughs> I, for the record, I do not think we will be doing that, uh, nor will I, I certainly wouldn't advocate for it, but I don't, we're nowhere near uh, to where that could be possible. <laughs> That's an awesome email, by the way. <laughs> yeah, you, oh, when you work in, on human evolution, you get weird emails. <laughs> oh my, I, we could do like 10, we could, I'm sure we could do like five minutes on like the weirdest emails you got. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Great direction. Can I ask a question real quick? Please. Thanks for that. Um, Doc, Dr. Shaw was, was first. Dr. Shaw was a we'll get mic to, to yeah. First of all, thank you so much, Nathan, for sharing your, I mean, study with us. And I mean, for me, that was very interesting from the point of, I mean, mirror ribosome, I mean, microRNA that you just mentioned about it, because there's a use of them in, a, I mean, cancer susceptibility for the candidate seven. Uh, if you just heard about that also, lots of use in uh, drug development, because right now we have lots of development on microRNA mm -hmm. base and also for the checkpoint in the cancer therapy and immunotherapy. If you mm -hmm. are aware of also in another part, I just noticed that they have a use of synthetic CRISPR products of using this mirror, mirror kind of MI, I mean, microRNA. That was very fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing that. Oh, you're welcome. I, I do think uh, we are just at the beginning of appreciating all that microRNAs do for us or do to us, even if you want to think of it that way, 
So um, I think you'll be hearing a lot of exciting stuff in the world of microRNAs, not just for human evolution, but uh, you know, throughout biomedical science. I, I, I think it's underappreciated. I think we're just really getting our hands around it now. I see a lot of potential in that for, um, for not gene therapy, because that would be something different, but um, for medical treatments, therapeutics. Yeah, I do too. I think um, especially because you can provide them in a way that's very specific to certain tissues, because that's, I mean, that's often a problem with uh, um, any gene therapy or genetic-based um, treatment, is that you got to get it to the right place and only the right place. Um, a gene in one tissue um, is important, and a gene in another tissue can completely screw it up. Cystic fibrosis gene is a, the CFTR uh, transmembrane regulator is a great example of this because um, it's very important in the tissues that it's important in, <laughs> and it will completely kill many other tissues as well because of, it totally throws off their ion balance. It's a chloride channel, and, um, and without you know, proper control, um, you can't just leave chloride channels open. <laughs> so that's why the gene therapy is so tricky is that, um, you know, you could kill with your cure. Um, so microRNAs, the advantage of those is that these nice, small, compact genes are easy to deliver and you can just simply put a tissue specific promoter, um, you know, something that is not, uh, in, which isn't possible with, with big protein coding genes. Uh, first of all, you can't, um, the promoters are, are different anyway. I didn't mention that, but um, yeah, they're just, they make a good delivery system and, and you can make them permanent. You could make them transient. It's really, um, I think it's underappreciated. So we'll see, we'll see where it goes, but I'm not just for the record. I'm not in uh, clinical research right now. I'm not doing anything related to that. I'm, I'm studying them in, in human evolution. Would you class that under off target effects? Um, well, I mean, I think that the, the term off-target effects is a pretty specific term in pharmacology. So I don't believe it's used in this context, uh, in the context of gene therapy or genetics, genetic treatments. Um, so no, I wouldn't, because I don't think it's well, the I right. It's, well, so for example, the uh, different protein or slightly different expression or regulation could have drastically larger effects than is expected. Is that a possibility? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, that's why genetic treatments are, are really, you have to be very careful. The, the potential for danger is great. Um, yeah. I guess that's what the question is. So we had, yeah. we had Kirko, then, then Jamie and Tuan on stack for questions. So Kirko. Thank you. I, I was starting to forget. Uh, so uh, it's a quick question, uh, possibly, um, but I was kind of thinking about, I kind of came in a room list. I don't know exactly all you talked about beforehand. But I just think mRNA, uh, microRNA is like really cool, and I think sometimes it can be used to like um, kind of turn off, turn up, and turn off like uh, gene expression. And like I recently watched a video on like uh, how like whales uh, really don't get cancer, and what they were attributing it to was like the uh, increase of um, the amount of like too much suppression genes. And I was thinking like uh, one way that like genes can kind of like uh, Increase in number of diversifiers like these transposons. So I was kind of wondering, uh, or transposable elements. So I was kind of wondering if there's any like, like correlations with like, uh, like certain uh, micro mRNAs and like transposable elements where like um, maybe like certain genes that like have times just happen to have like a similar or the same micro RNA. 
You know what I'm saying? Because I feel like that may shed some light into like this whole human evolution type of thing. So, Kirko, it's it's really interesting that you put these together because, uh, yes, absolutely. First of all, there is a connection between transposable elements uh, uh, and microRNA gene creation. Um, that's not what we found in this region, but we spent more than six months chasing that hypothesis. So I want you to know that was a very good suggestion um, that you came up with because we thought the same thing. That And, uh, and indeed, there are microRNAs that seem to have been uh, carried along for the ride with transposable elements, which means they were copied into multiple family members. In fact, there's one of them, there's at least nine family members of this gene uh, that have been copied through transposable elements. Um, generally, what's interesting is they just create more of the exact same microRNA, um, and they, meaning that the genes might diverge a little bit, but they produce the same product, the same microRNA, because there's a lot of processing of these, of the original transcript. So the final thing is only like 21 to 22 base pairs long. Uh, but this, it's a duplex, so and both sequences can target. Um, but anyway, the point is, is that um, uh, transposable elements are a vehicle uh, for gene duplication, including of microRNAs, and that's why RNA genes are so much hard, first of all harder to study than protein coding genes. I mean, the annotation of the human genome. People talk about all the areas that we're just now learning to to annotate. Those are all RNA genes. We figured out how to find protein coding genes a long time ago because protein coding genes tend to follow a lot of the basic rules the same you know you, you find a cpg island you find a tata box and a cat box in in uh, you know close proximity you find underrepresented codons you know you've got six reading frames so if there's a start and a stop within this you know there's all these rules for finding protein coding genes not that hard but rna genes there's no rules it's really hard to find rna genes you know with nothing but sequence uh so what you have to do is get better and better at detecting transcripts and then finding the genes, you know, based on complementarity to the transcript. But the problem with that, I don't know if you guys know this, if you've heard of this, but the ENCODE project has taught us, which is that there's a lot of spurious transcription. There's a lot of just kind of junk RNA, uh, meaning junk transcripts. There's sort of a background rate of transcription of just anything throughout the genome that is meaningless and functionless, most of which but gosh, what a, what a reservoir of molecules for evolution to tinker around with. Uh, you know, they're sort of there in the background uh, waiting to be used. But in, anyway, um, and so we don't, it's really hard to find RNA genes in the human genome, just in general, because they don't follow any of the same rules that coding regions do, first of all. And secondly, um, there's transcription everywhere, uh, pretty much throughout the chromosomes, and at least low levels of it, unless you're really like, you know, in an alpha satellite or whatever. But you know, heavily methylated DNA. But um, the, the point, how do we get onto this? Sorry, I, this happens to me. <laughs> oh, oh, uh, the transposable elements and uh, human evolution. So we, that was our first uh, suspect. But what we found, well, first of all, we did find transposable elements in the region, but they weren't associated with the, the microRNAs. So they were active. Uh, but the gene duplications we saw, I shouldn't say gene duplications, the segmental duplications that we saw were too large, uh, most of them. Not all of them. Most of them were too large to be transposable elements, first of all. So in addition to looking for those, we also were looking for other mechanisms. And of course, the logical choice is meiotic recombination, because when you have cross crossover events, um, I, I, if you guys remember uh, your, your intro bio, what, 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 when you have a holiday junction, it's actually two junctions, right? And with the heteroduplex in, in, in the uh, middle. And if you have misalignment, um, you can actually pull DNA from one homolog to the other. And then when the crossover is cut and resolved, 
you know, you've actually, you know, deleted DNA from one homologue and, and increased it or, or duplicated it in the other. Now it depends on which one, you know, they end up in different gametes and blah, blah, blah. So, um, you know, you, you should see insertions and deletions, or I should say duplications and deletions in equal numbers, but you don't usually, you find usually the, um, expanded set, not the deleted set, uh, for, for reasons we, we can talk about later. But, uh, the point though, is that, um, that's what we think we found. Oh, and how do we how do we know that? Well, besides just the size, we also can look for anywhere in the genome. You can look for what are called recombination hotspots. Um, and so there are certain sequences that are more likely to uh, lead to recombination or, or have a recombination event. Uh, but remember that these are these would just show sort of a, yes, it is a sequence search, but it doesn't mean that that's exactly where the branch point happens, because remember that they slide the heteroduplex slides. Uh, uh, well, actually, the holiday junction slides. Um, and so it might begin one place, but it's somewhere far away by the time it's resolved. Uh, so what these hotspots tell you is that somewhere in that neighborhood, you're more likely to get a crossover event, um, which doesn't prove that that's how these happen by any means, but it's just sort of suspicious. And also the size is suspicious. And also there's only so many mechanisms, at least that we know of, uh, that lead to... Uh, these segmental duplications. So that's our working hypothesis. Um, and how could we prove it? Well, we're going to get, hopefully, uh, over the next 10, 20 years, we're going to get access to more and more ancient genomes. Uh, we have genomes now that are 50,000 years old, 100,000, well, not quite 100,000. Um, but I, I suspect if we start getting DNA from the fossils in, in Spain, the Cima de los Huesos, uh, from those fossils, those are quite a bit older than anything we have right now. So we're getting closer to maybe not the midpoint, but further and further back in time, if we assume that these, uh, they may not be our ancestors, they, they're going to be a sister branch, though, so we can sort of deduce the ancestral uh, sequence from that. Uh, the older we get, the closer we'll get to whatever that ancestral sequence was, um, and that might help resolve some of this as well. We won't be able to see all of the, these duplications in action, so to speak, but we can see some of them, you know, that have happened in the last hopefully, you know, 100, 200,000 years, you know, we'll catch some of the other ones. Um, and then, then we'll know. Well, we won't know, but we'll have more data. <laughs> I think I could probably do one more question and then I might have to bail. I was gonna, can I ask you, Doctor, um, you know, you were mentioning about the microRNA and how there could be a lot of potential in it by making it like, you know, tone down things and tone up things. So you're, if I'm understanding it correctly, like, been able to manipulate the, the 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 DNA and everything from a kind of you know two steps away like a control panel on the computer or something like that. Um, but have you did you find any patterns to how micro, uh, you know, RNA um, actually behaved? Like, because you said it can affect little parts in small ways or a lot of parts in big ways. Did you find any behavioral? Um, yeah, so we haven't done that yet. Um, we haven't um, started to uh, try to observe the function of these in, in vivo or even in vitro, actually. But other researchers have previously published about these microRNAs in terms of what they do. There wasn't any evolutionary look at it or, or even a look at the gene itself. But the, the both of the microRNAs that we, we were interested in that are human-specific, and by the way, there are others human-specific ones that we just haven't published those yet. Um, the human-specific ones, uh, these two, um, have been detected, and they are expressed in the brain. Both of them are in the adult brain. 
Um, both of them, one of them is, is actually detected in cerebrospinal fluid. Um, they've both been associated with disease states in one way or another, because there's a lot of um, papers out there that just scan the whole global picture of, of microRNA gene expression in, say, ovarian cancer or, you know, skin uh, cancer or whatever, or even just this tissue or that tissue. So um, while this doesn't really talk about their function, what it does do is show that these are active genes that create a gene product, you know, that, that's detectable. Um, oh, oh, and also uh, both of them in at least one paper each um, have, have had some of their targets validated, um, meaning that it, th these things really truly uh, affect the expression of some of their, their gene targets. So we, we know that they're functional in the human body and that we no other creature except humans have them um, and that our uh, closest relatives, Neanderthals and Denisovans, also have them. Although we don't know for sure if they've been detected there, of course, but uh, they had the genes. So, um, and it, and mm -hmm. if you didn't, and so if you haven't looked into, if you've not been able to look into yet any pattern there, I suppose, then you wouldn't have any indication if um, particular instruction of microRNA was like hereditary, you know, like a, like a, like a, a family line would have a, an okay. RNA code. Yeah. So there are no uh, clinical diseases or clinical anything actually um, associated with either of these genes. Um, so there've been no, uh, there's a, there's a database that's called ClinVar that, is, that um, any, any particular genetic uh, modification that it has been associated with a certain disease state or clinical condition of some kind, um, those have, uh, have been detected. Of course, they, not everybody's looked at every single thing yet, of course, but uh, there is a pretty big database of, of ClinVar, so genetic variation that's been known to associate with disease. Neither one of these have any entries in that database. That doesn't you know, it's evidence of absence is an absence of evidence. Oh, sorry, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. But um, by now, um, there's very, you know, very little. Um, I should say there's no evidence yet to think that these play any role. Thank you so, very much. Well, thank you all. It's been a it's been a great conversation. Um, I need to say good night now. But I had a wonderful time having this conversation. I and I'll be listening in on future ones. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Have a nice evening. Have a good evening. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Yeah, thank you everyone for coming. Um, thanks for asking great questions and participating in the discussion. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you, Nathan, for coming. I uh, really appreciate the time you took for doing this. And uh, yeah, if you like the sort of rooms follow the science society club and um we have more rooms coming up um i don't know if anyone of the other moderators wants to say something before i make like the regular announcements i had a million questions that we didn't have time to get to i wanted to know what it takes to to the cost to run a sequencing lab um, <clears throat> the the implications of the the recent announcement that the remainder of the entire human genome had been um, sequenced and whether that was actually 100% true or not from what I read it seems to be true um, the yeah I had so many questions <laughs> okay yeah we can invite Nathan back always and then um, ask more questions he has also more interesting 
research from his forensic lab related research so i think it's i i think forensics are really interesting and so i always wanted to learn more about like a real forensic research lab so <laughs> it's pretty cool um yeah let's plan for that um for inviting nathan back and um i think that's a that's a good idea um Tomorrow we'll have at the same time Dr. Liang uh, from a company and uh, she will talk about carbon negative production of acetone, isopropanol. It's more like an um, efficiency climate related room. Um, then we'll have Dr. Moraine. It's a more mental health uh, related room um, regarding ADHD and hoarding. And then we will have on Friday, we, it's, we're still deciding it will be more round table discussion type of room. We'll um, come with an interesting topic from recent um, news, science news and, and discuss that. And then on Saturday at 1 p.m. EST, we have Dr. Marco Pizzini. Uh, he's a physicist from Italy. He's currently in, in France and um, uh, talking about his long-distance electrodynamic intermolecular forces paper and his work. So, yeah. Um, and next week, so we have a lot of more guests because please check out the calendar. Um, oh, right. If you would like to have a more detailed calendar um, that goes more into the future than what you can see <clears throat> on uh, Clubhouse, we have a Discord channel, and I will, uh, we will uh, start to use that more. Also, if you have like questions for us, suggestions, um, you know, something that we should do or not doing yet, um, or just participate in the discussion, you can um, are welcome to sign up for our discord server and uh, i'll put up a more um, detailed calendar um, on there uh, for the future i think we have um we have booked until the last week of of may so great uh yeah thank you everyone if you have something to share still please go ahead and if not we'll close the room for today Good evening, everybody. Have a good night. Yeah, good evening, everyone. Good night. Thanks. Good night, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye everyone. Thank you. Good night, everyone.